Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and this week I am joined by my co-worker extraordinaire once again, Ben Bolin. Hi, Ben. Hey, Jonathan. How's it going? Great. Especially since, uh, you know, once again, I, I gave Ben the option of saying you could choose anything that's on this list and he picked something that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but, but it's an awesome topic. It's one that really fits both my show and Ben, your stuff they don't want you to know show. Mm-hmm. And that's the X37B. And Jonathan, before we go on, let me say in my defense, I guess I do owe you an apology. It may as well be public. I thought it was anything that wasn't on that list. Oh, that's fair. I, I totally switched that up. But uh, you thought you thought that list of like forty things represented all seven hundred episodes of tech I thought stuff. There was stuff you already have in the mix. You've got a million projects. Ah, uh, that's fair. But no, you could have picked any of those. <laughs> Actually, to be to be honest, I I really do give any potential guest host the full uh, option of picking whatever topic they want. And mm. then, you know, we go from there. If it's something that we've already covered on tech stuff, then I say, well, we need to make sure that whatever it is we talk about is a different take, that kind of thing. Uh, but a lot of people like to have the guidance of the list of potential topics. Right, because you've but, covered a lot of stuff. 
when you come back with something that that isn't on the list and I haven't covered, that's awesome. Okay. Uh, so in this case, we're talking about a space plane, mm-hmm. a secret space plane. And uh, it's been reported on in the news several times. There's a, a, an upcoming launch that should be happening in May of 2015. Um, uh, it is As we record this, it's early April of 2015. So obviously that's still a ways out. And depending on weather and stuff, it could end up being pushed mm-hmm. back. But we wanted to talk about what this plane is, and we'd love to talk about what it's doing, <laughs> but yeah. as you'll find out, that's a little complicated. There are some guesses, and as we uh, continue through today's episode, we will arrive at some of that. But to to be absolutely honest, from the jump, the people who do know what it's doing are mm-hmm. totally not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, th- this is like... Almost Area 51 level secrecy, right? Where, <laughs> yeah. where people, it, it's, it's, it's common knowledge that the thing exists, mm-hmm. but not common knowledge of what's going on with it. It's very much like Area 51 was for many years. Uh, so the setup I have on this is on Friday, October 17th, 2014, an unmanned plane landed autonomously, I should add, mm-hmm. at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And it had spent 674 days, nearly two full years, in low Earth orbit, in space. It flew for two years up in space. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the landing marked the end of the, uh, I call it a test flight, but really you could just call it a mission, mm-hmm. of the X-37B space plane, also known as the Orbital Test Vehicle, or OTV, and there are two of those planes in existence, and together they've logged more than 1,367 days in orbit total. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's across three missions. So that's a lot of time yeah. at once. Uh, so you might want to know what's going on. And the thing is, like we mentioned, yeah, right. it's a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know. Right. And we, neither yeah. do we. Well, <laughs> well, I think eventually that... We're going to know, we being the public, eventually we have to know. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a story behind this. It's a culmination of stuff that began decades ago, right? Yeah. It started back in the 1990s. Uh, so turn your watch back, if you will, to the magical decade of the 90s. Grunge music is all the rage. Oh, yeah. You know, the Generation Xers are making sardonic entertainment mm-hmm. left and right, Empire mm-hmm. Records, that kind of thing. Um, so NASA at that point was looking into the future of space exploration, particularly the type that doesn't need human beings on spacecraft. Yeah, humans are such a hassle in space. You have to you have to spend so much time, technology and money just to like make get, them not die. Yeah, get the little <laughs> guys up there and back. Yeah, yeah, keeping keeping humans alive in space is a tall order because there's a lot of stuff in space that is Really deadly. Right. It's you know, not our neck of the woods. The vacuum of space. <laughs> you've got radiation. Mm-hmm. You've got microgravity, which over uh, a long enough time period can cause some serious health problems. Yeah. Tiny objects at high speeds. Yeah. Space debris, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, clearly the the space age, we've had our share of tragedies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we definitely aren't making light of that. That's one of the reasons why so much effort and money has have been put forward into these unmanned missions. Mm-hmm. 
And can we find ways of getting stuff to space? Let's say, uh, like a, like a, a, a refueling mission or a, you know, uh, you're replenishing inventory aboard the International Space Station. Sure. Without the need for a manned space flight. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a real reason why NASA was interested in this. And, um, they were, you know, apart from that, it also reduces cost. Oh, right? yeah. You, Dramatically. You, yeah. You don't have to have a life support system, for example, in an unmanned spacecraft. Uh, that alone will save <laughs> you millions of bucks, right? right? So in 1998, NASA announced that it was developing a pair of vehicles, uh, one called the Orbital Vehicle and one called the Approach and Landing Test Vehicle, or ALTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ALTV's purpose was to test the approach and landing systems of an unmanned plane. So this one was not designed to go into space, the ALTV. And uh, mm-hmm. NASA partnered with Boeing and the Air Force in order to get this program going. So the ALTV was just an unmanned, I say just, it was an unmanned <laughs> plane. Because it's amazing to me that you could build an autonomous vehicle that could land right. a plane. And on, take off. Yeah, yeah, on a landing strip. Well, in this case, they, it wasn't taking off. Because what they did with this was they would lift it up on another vehicle and then drop it. <laughs> and then they would allow the unmanned vehicle to fly itself to the proper landing destination and land. Mm-hmm. So... The Alt-V, it could not take off on its own. Okay. It couldn't go into space, but it, it was designed mainly as a test platform for the autonomous uh, guidance system and landing. Sort of a proof of concept. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, if you want to build upon this and create a, a, a vehicle, an unmanned vehicle that can go into space, first you want to make absolutely certain that you have taken steps to show that it can land uh, before you pour in all the money that is necessary for it to be able to survive the rigors of space travel. Yeah, and there's a little bit of a, um, I guess, a geopolitical calculation with this kind of stuff, too, because it, if an orbit decays, right, if the thing gets into space and it crashes or it just doesn't land where it's supposed to, then not only have you, the launching party, lost billions of dollars, right, yeah. but you've also given all of this research to another country and right. maybe not a friendly one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've seen this sort of stuff throughout the history of the, uh, well, really the Cold War mm-hmm. is, you know, like things like the U2, U2 uh, spy plane going yeah. down and the fact that that was a huge concern that, that, uh, the, the adversaries to the United States had suddenly gained access to some of that technology. Uh, well, you know, that's clearly another concern for this sort of stuff. You want to make sure that everything's working properly before you ever put it toward any kind of sensitive use or even mm-hmm. just a scientific, uh, experiment or whatever. Like maybe it's to, you know, uh, deploy a satellite or something. Yeah, that's fair. So, or even, even something more sophisticated, like to fix a satellite, to repair a solar panel, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So this, like I said, Boeing was partnering with NASA to develop these. Uh, it would ultimately, under this part of the the program, own it would only develop the Alt V for NASA. Mm-hmm. That's as far as it got. Uh, but it was designated uh, as the X thirty seven A aircraft or spacecraft. Really, that's the street name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so much easier to say that than uh, you know Alt V or whatever. So. It was similar to an earlier unmanned aircraft that was 
uh, again, made by Boeing, but this one was uh, operated by the Air Force. It was the X-40A. And again, the X-40A was meant as a test platform for things that would ultimately go on an unmanned space plane type vehicle. Uh, So another proof of concept, kind of like the idea that we want to make sure that we get, you know, take the right steps. We're not Mm going to. We're not going to leap and jump over like six steps of development. We're right. going to use this as an incremental approach. So the X-40A could not actually go into space, but again, was to test certain technologies. Mm-hmm. It also was too small for NASA. And could we, yeah, it was too small for NASA. Could we, before we go on, uh, could you talk a little bit about just uh, the dramatic waste in typical conventional launches? Oh, sure. Yeah. like Yeah, I mean, like, so... Generally speaking, the the rule of thumb is that a launch with a government-funded space launch mm. is about $10,000 per pound. Per pound. Per pound. Every pound of payload that you want to put into space costs ten grand. So imagine that you have a vehicle that has all these different support systems on it for astronauts. Mm-hmm. That adds to the weight. Plus, then you have the payload of the spacecraft itself. So something like the Space Shuttle Program which was designed to take material into space, either as like a satellite to be deployed or tools to repair things that already existed, like mm-hmm. the Hubble, um, or even just a trip to the International Space Station to bring supplies up there. All of that weight is a factor in the cost of launch. If you do an unmanned spacecraft and you reduce mm-hmm. the the weight of the spacecraft, you've reduced the you know even even though the X thirty seven A was larger than the X forty A, it's still significantly smaller than a space shuttle, mm-hmm. and that means that it would cost less to put up. You know, you have to use less fuel, so it costs less to put it up into low Earth orbit. It when I say less, it's still really expensive. Uh, by the way, when I the reason why I stressed government funded <laughs> space launch is there are a lot of private companies that have been arguing that by privatizing they could bring down the price of launching payloads into space. So things like SpaceX right. have really helped to to reduce that cost. So then getting into the the differences between the X forty A and the X thirty seven A. Despite the fact that it's a lower number, the X-37A is a bigger spacecraft. It's 120% larger than the X-40A. And there are other differences as well. Once we get to the one that actually was designed to go into space. Ooh, yeah, my favorite. Yeah, that one's got advanced thermal protection, spacecraft systems, that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. the 37A and the 40A were both designed just to be test platforms. So they didn't need all that, all the extra stuff. So we're going through this incremental testing and starting to see if we can really make this, this vision a reality, this autonomous super secret spacecraft, which I just love the idea of it, Jonathan, but how, um, how, how do the, bureaucratic changes. So, yeah, occur. this the, the, we're talking a lot about NASA right now, and you might be thinking, well, why is this space plane so secret? I mean, mm-hmm. NASA is not about secrecy. And it's not. The 37A wasn't meant to be secret at all. In fact, that's a lot of the information you can find about the spacecraft is right there on NASA's website. Yeah. Because it's, it's all publicly available. Uh, but some changes would end up making the... Uh, let's say the stewardship of the 37 X 37 program change hands. 
So first in 2001, the Air Force withdrew its support for the project, its financial support. It was one of three parties that was partnered to fund this, the other two being NASA and Boeing. Mm -hmm. Air Force pulls out in 2001. NASA keeps going with the partnership with Boeing. Uh, they had to end up, um, you know, going to the government and saying, hey, we need grants and stuff in order for this to keep going. Otherwise, the project's going to collapse from the inside. Uh, this continues until 2004. And that's when NASA ends up handing over the control of the X-37 program to the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as DARPA, which I've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Yeah, we've uh, talked about it on a couple of other shows, too. Uh, DARPA, I'm, I'm assuming that people have heard this name before, mm -hmm. uh, but the rumors are true. It is the closest thing the U.S. has to a mad science department. Yeah, it's the Department of Defense's <laughs> mad science department. Yes, yeah. And, and it's not like DARPA is filled with a bunch of Bond uh, villains or something. Yeah, yeah. In, in lab coats, like <laughs> locked away 40, 40 levels underground. In fact, mostly what DARPA does is invite other entities to develop for mm -hmm. specific purposes. So I did an episode not long ago talking about how DARPA was instrumental in the rapid development of autonomous car technology. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so in this, it, it's very akin to that. This is an autonomous spacecraft technology. So, you know, you're, you're talking about the continuation of an idea and just expanding it, you know, expanding the parameters really. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in this case, DARPA takes over and it meant that the X-37 fell under the control of the Department of Defense, which also meant that the X-37 suddenly became a classified project. It was no longer this, this, you know, very public facing, uh, project from NASA. Now it's a classified project under the Department of Defense. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, which is, Kind of a bummer, but also understandable, uh, given that the kind of technology that they would be working on is not something you want or, or really can have open sourced, you know? Yeah. Because other countries will get involved. Other countries will reverse engineer. And there's a lot of, um, again, this is, this is where I think we start to see a, a, a political aspect become even more apparent. Uh, but, but the stories, not done yet, right? Right. Uh, so remember the Air Force had pulled sort of its, its support in 2001. Yeah. In November 2006, it announces it's going to develop a variation of the X-37A. Remember the orbital vehicle that NASA had proposed? They, they never got to the point where that was actually built. Right. They had built the one that was the approach and landing test vehicle, but not the orbital one. And the Air Force wanted to build an orbital vehicle, uh, they called it the Orbital Test Vehicle, so the OTV, mm -hmm. uh, and they designated it the X-37B. So 37A was the one that NASA used to test this approach and landing uh, uh, technology. And this one was meant to actually go into space. Uh, so the, the top secret program falls to the control of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Now, the official word. From the Air Force, as to the purpose of the X-37 program, is this is a direct quote from mm -hmm, their website. Mm -hmm. The X-37B Orbital Test Vehicle, or OTV, is an experimental test program to demonstrate technologies for a reliable, reusable, unmanned space test platform for the U.S. Air Force. The primary objectives of the X-37B are twofold. Reusable spacecraft technologies for America's future in space and operating experiments 
which can be returned to and examined on Earth. Oh. So um, there's some important stuff in there that really does play into the purpose of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big one being that it is a reusable spacecraft. Right. So yep. it's not a one and done, right? Uh, and this was the same purpose for the space shuttle program. It was the difference between that and uh, previous programs where – like a, a capsule would go up and come back down, and then once it came down, it had to be retired. You couldn't use it again. This is the difference between you know those and and th- those previous uh, uh, spacecraft and things like the space shuttle and the X thirty seven spacecraft. Yeah, we're kind of locked into it at this point because we've put so much money in at the front. Yeah. So we'll we'll have to we'll have to make that money back. Um, I'm I'm just tickled because what I love about these relatively obtuse kind of explanations mm-hmm. uh, is is that there there's clearly um there's clearly a reliance on vague language the word test is used three times in the first sentence yeah and the substantive you are right they are saying substantive things the reusable spacecraft is probably the the biggest part of it another part is the testing of the instruments mm-hmm. which Again, although you and I don't really know that, that seems like one of the best guesses. Yeah. For the mission. Yeah. And, and it, you know, you could argue that part of this, the existence of this is really just to incrementally build toward a future spacecraft that has not yet been designed. Right. For specific purposes that may go beyond this testing that we're talking about. Uh, and another one may be that it's to test related technologies that are not intended to make the spacecraft itself mm-hmm. more effective, but rather just say, hey, we built this sensor. The sensor is meant to do this specific task when it's in space, but we don't know if the sensor can actually withstand being in space, like being exposed to radiation. Right. But then you think, oh, I've got this unmanned vehicle. I can put it up into orbit for hundreds of days at a time. And expose the sensor to the same kinds of radiation it will would experience if it were incorporated into some other type of spacecraft. And then we can test and see if, in fact, the thing we designed will still work, mm-hmm. you know, once it's in space. So those are I mean, that's a valid thing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but it but because of the secrecy involved, the fact that these these details cannot legally be. <laughs> shared has led to some really interesting hypotheses some more grounded than others i like that you use the term grounded yes yeah spacecraft i'll be here all day i'm surprised we got this far without another space fund yeah we've got a ton in the notes and they were all well unintentional might be going a bit far like i (laughs) i would realize it while typing it out and i'm like oh well okay (laughs) <laughs> Go ahead and do it. Out. Hey, uh, but we do know we do know a lot about the X thirty seven. You can see pictures of it online. Yep. You can see some great footage of it uh, that comes from, I think, ultimately from the Air Force themselves. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, the 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 landing is impressive, right? The mm-hmm. the fact that this is landing autonomously, so it's unmanned, but it's not just unmanned. There's no one remote controlling this aircraft when it comes down and lands. Right. It's not a drone. That's very important. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fully under its own navigation power. 
so here's some of the facts that we know about it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is because, again, it started its life out as a NASA project. <laughs> so there were some details that were already out there. And the Air Force is like, well, heck, we don't care about this part. This isn't the important part. Right. Just don't talk about the lasers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tickle device. Yeah. Yeah. It's the... just there to tickle space. That's mm-hmm. all it's meant to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's what we do know. Uh, it is 29 feet, 3 inches long, which is about 8.9 meters. Uh, when it's on its landing gear, it is 9 feet, 6 inches tall, or about 2.9 meters. Now, at that space, even if you had a pressurized cabin, you wouldn't be able to really have astronauts ride in it. Uh, the X-37B does not have a pressurized cabin. Right. So it cannot carry up anything living. At least nothing that you expect to remain so. <laughs> right. it, it's it could carry up non animate uh, like cargo that kind of sure. stuff. Sure, and not a whole lot of it at that at that size. Mm. Uh, from wingtip to wingtip, it is fourteen feet eleven inches wide, or four point five meters, and it weighs a slimming eleven thousand pounds, or four thousand nine hundred ninety kilograms. Uh, its power system it uses lithium ion batteries to to uh, supply power to its. Uh, it's thrusters, but it is, uh, it's got gallium arsenide solar cells to recharge those. That's why it can stay in space so long. Cause that's the question that a lot of people have at the beginning is how does it manage to retain power for that long yeah. and return to its original, um, you know, re- return to its launch point on its own power? This is not necessarily a powerful vehicle on its own. No, it, it cannot take off from Earth, and it certainly cannot escape Earth's gravity on its own. It has to have a launch vehicle. Uh, Also, more commonly referred to uh, by we mere mortals as rockets. (laughs) So you got to strap one of these suckers onto a rocket, Uh um, typically an Atlas V, or Atlas Atlas V, I guess I Mm -hmm. should say. I was going to say V. (laughs) Call IXII. The Atlas V rocket, you have to strap it up to one of those suckers to get it out into space in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that actually has raised some folks, um, objections to this whole approach, but we'll get into that a little okay. bit. So the way it would work is, uh, originally they were thinking about having this kind of piggyback onto a space shuttle. Mm-hmm. So if you were going to launch a space shuttle, you could also launch a space plane. However, the Columbia disaster, uh, really caused NASA to reevaluate the space shuttle program for quite some time. In fact, it was it was put on the ground for a good long time after the Columbia disaster, as NASA was reevaluating the program and seeing uh, how to make it so that that kind of tragedy would never happen again. Yeah. Uh, so that meant that that would no longer be a viable means of getting the X thirty seven into space. So at that point, the reevaluation for X thirty seven meant. They looked at it as a payload for other launch vehicles, and they settled on the United Launch Alliance Atlas V. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road, and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. 
No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town, I use my smartphone to look up things to do, or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the launch vehicle delivers the X-37 to low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is the same orbit that you find the International Space Station. It's the mm-hmm. same Earth orbit that the Hubble spacecraft or Hubble Space Telescope is in. It's the same Earth orbit or it's the same orbit that uh, all the space shuttle missions went to. Right. So in other words, there have only been a couple times that human beings have ever gone beyond, beyond low Earth orbit. Those times would be when we sent people to the moon. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, everything's been in low Earth orbit, which is relatively close to the Earth. From our perspective, it's way the heck out there. But if you were to look at Earth from a much tall, like a, not even a bird's eye view, obviously, <laughs> but, but much further out, you would say, oh, low, low Earth orbit is still very much in the neighborhood. Yeah, a, a space bird. Well, I, I guess one of the great ways to imagine this is if you look at a picture with the distance between Earth's moon and Earth. Yeah. And then you see the the line near Earth orbit is very, very close. Yeah, exactly. And it's also where a lot of space debris happens to be. There's mm-hmm. other space because we do have satellites that are much further out. Right. We've got uh, like the, the geosynchronous satellites are much further out than low yeah. Earth orbit. But those were delivered by unmanned spacecraft. They weren't they weren't put there by astronauts. Uh, so that that is, you know, we do have stuff that's further out, but it's not stuff from manned missions. And this unmanned mission would end up going in that same very 
below Earth orbit. Uh, and it could stay originally. I think they were planning on having it stay between 200 and 300 days. So not quite a year. Yeah, that would be pretty much the limit that was originally, or at least that was kind of what the mission parameters were going to be. Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, it can stay up there much longer than that. So the very first mission for an X-37 launched on April 22nd, 2010, and landed on December 3rd, 2010, landed without a hitch. Uh, Some of their test uh, landings that they did where they just dropped one of these X-37s from another aircraft some of them were successful. Not all of them were. Not at all. Yeah. They had some issues where I think on the very, I think the very first time they tried to land one, um, when the mission hadn't been scrapped for weather, it ended up landing on the, the landing strip, but it overshot a little bit and rolled off the end and sustained minor damage. Okay. Not uh, that bad. No, no. And then remember, they built two of these things. Mm-hmm. Originally, they were just going to do one, but they ended up building two. Uh, so that first mission lasted 224 days, and the X-37 traveled approximately 91 million miles in those 224 days, which is about 146 million kilometers. The second mission was launched on March 5th, 2011. Now, this was the second of the two X-37s. Uh-huh. So it wasn't the same one that went up in 2010. Right. Uh, important to remember, because remember, the whole purpose of these was So you have reusable, the idea being you could turn it around fairly quickly and launch it for a new mission. But they didn't reuse the original one. Not for this one. Not for this mission. They they decided, all right, we're going to stagger these. So the second one went up on March 25th, 2011. Uh, This was supposed to only last, only is a weird way of putting it, only last (laughs) 270 days. That's an incredibly long time to just be, you know, just be in a spacecraft. Remember, it's not the International Space Station or anything like that. But on November 29th, 2011, the Air Force announced it was going to extend the mission. You know, just let it go for a while longer. Yeah. So it eventually landed on June 16th, 2012, which means it lasted 469 days. That is mind-blowing. Yeah. So this spacecraft was just orbiting Earth. For 469 days. Sometimes, by the way, it's low enough that you can spot it on oh, yeah. Earth. Amateur uh, satellite uh, investigators or yeah. observers can check it out. You can go online uh, and find the find the correct forums, uh, which allow you to track pretty much anything that is in orbit if it's close enough to yeah. be seen. It's uh, it's the great Achilles heel of secrecy in space. Yeah, yeah. If you're like, hey, that star's moving, <laughs> the chances are it's not a star, and it's not it's not the Death Star, probably. Probably, it's more likely a space station <laughs> or a spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, so the third mission launched on December 11th, 2012, uh, and this one was the same spacecraft that did the 2010 mm-hmm. launch. So this was the first one, the first X-37B. Um, now. This particular one uh, lasted for 674 days. This is the one we talked about where it was just shy of two years. Right, yeah. Um, pretty amazing that it could stay up that long. It landed on October 17th, 2014. So this is the one I was referring to at mm-hmm. the top of the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fourth mission is scheduled to launch on May 6th, 2015. But again, we're in early April as we record this. So yeah. that's still in our future. Right. But what happens on these missions? That's a great question, Ben. (laughs) 
Uh, remember how I said it was classified and top secret? Yes. Do you think I have that clearance? Is that I, where we're going? I thought this was, I, I thought you were doing a bit. You're the guy who, who <laughs> knows the stuff they don't want you to know. If anything, I should be asking you this question. Well, uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. And, and, and thank you for the shout out, but, uh, Rumors proliferate yes. in, the, in the absence of transparency. Right? Actually, absolutely. Like yeah. if you, you know, you obviously can't deny the existence of this thing sure. because we all know it exists. But if you cannot also explain the reason for it or what its purpose is or what it is doing, mm-hmm. then in the absence, that vacuum of information, nature abhors a vacuum. So we'll <laughs> nice. fill it with conjecture. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about not telling us what it does. We will take care of that for you by suggesting every kind of hypothesis you can imagine. Okay. But with all that being said, uh, now we get to do one of the most enjoyable, fascinating, and sometimes slippery slopish kind of things, which yeah. is we begin to assemble some of the facts we definitely know and see if that builds out toward a larger picture, right? All right. Yeah. So here's here's what we know. DARPA took control of it. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Department of Defense. The Air Force is running it. So it's a military operation. With it being a military operation, you can therefore assume that it's going to be doing some uh, things that would, in the long term, support military operations. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not going to be a cable television satellite deployment device. That's not <laughs> right. going to help. Yeah. You know, the Air Force is like, we're strapped for cash. Let's see if Comcast wants us to put something up in the sky. That's yeah. not going to happen. So, therefore, we narrow that the, down the possible uses for this to military things that would benefit the military in some form or fashion. Yeah, that makes sense. So that gives us some some direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the popular hypotheses is that the X-37 is acting like a spy satellite. Which may be to spy upon land targets mm-hmm. or even other spacecraft, other targets in space. So it could be a satellite. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of people saying, hey, this, you know, most recent test had the spacecraft, the X-37, on the same general orbit mm-hmm. as a Chinese satellite. Yeah, the Tongyong One or something. Yeah, yeah uh, I believe so. And uh, yeah, and that's a that's a space lab. Yeah, it's been up for a while. And it has its own refueling. So of course, people people would guess that this is a satellite either spying on other satellites or giving imagery from the ground, mapping. Yeah, in other words, right. I, the orbital path of the X thirty seven B takes it over um, Southeast Asia, Latin Mm -hmm. America, parts of the Middle East, notably Iraq. So it's not an unreasonable guess. Yeah, you can understand why people would would suggest this. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't know all the equipment that's aboard the X-37. You might have noticed that we didn't give you a rundown on... Like it has this kind of camera system on right. it because we don't know. But we, we'd love to do that. But uh, the stuff we do know is sort of vague. We know it has the solar array. Yeah. Right? We know, yeah, the we know power that's system. What, we know that's what allows it to stay up for so mm-hmm. long. Uh, you know, I can't say that it would be able to stay up indefinitely, but it certainly is staying up there an incredibly long amount of time for something designed to fly up and fly back down. Yeah. You know, it's not again, it's not a space station. Right. Um, so. Here's the thing about the idea of it spying on the space lab. That's not really physically possible, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because uh, you can you can check out some of the words from the analyst 
uh, this idea of it following a satellite came about from that speculation. But uh, there's a guy named Jim Oberg, uh, who is who is a space analyst, which is a great job to have. Yeah, I would love to have that job. Like, it's I'd a pretty like, cool job. Looks pretty empty to me. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that's a star. No. It's moving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We'd yeah. be very good at that. I, yeah, I mean, I think I think we got a new podcast. <laughs> so, so um, let's go ahead and and uh, we'll we'll finish quoting Jim and invite him to the show later yeah. on our on our space analyst right. stuff. Uh, he points out that these two objects, the the Chinese space lab and the X thirty seven B, they're in orbits that cross the equator about ninety degrees apart. So when they do crisscross each other's paths, they're going thousands of meters per second. So how how can you make an observation? Yeah, at no, that it's, speed? You're, you're going by so quickly that mm-hmm. there's no there's no way to get any meaningful information. Right. Um, it would be kind of like let's let's imagine that Ben for a moment that mm-hmm. that you're riding with Scott. Okay. Yeah. From now car Scott stuff. Scott from Car Stuff because you guys do car stuff together. Mm-hmm. Scott. He's got a lead foot, man. Sure does. He likes <laughs> he likes to drive fast. Mm-hmm. So let's say that he's driving by. Uh, you're you're in the passenger seat. He's mm-hmm. he's flying down the road. He's in one of his uh his amazingly souped up muscle cars. I'm by the way totally making this up. <laughs> but let's let's say that he's or sports vehicle. Let's say it's sure. even faster than a muscle car. It's a sports car that's designed to go fast. It's a it's one of those that was converted from an old race car. And you zoom past a person that neither of you know. Okay. And he asks you what color their eyes were. Ah, that's pretty It's good. like that, yeah. except multiply it by way faster speeds. Yes, <laughs> so yeah. it's just, it's, it's impossible to get any kind of meaningful information from that. Uh, so what's another hypothesis? How about it's not actually doing any spying of its own? Ah. It's just testing spy technology. Okay, like, uh, what, why would they be doing that? Well, let's say that you, again, kind of like that idea of the sensors that you might mm. want in order to, uh, to monitor something like, uh, nuclear deployment in another country or, right. uh, any other kind of sensor you can imagine that would be useful for military purposes. And they've built these on Earth. See, here's the downfall that we have about our, our technologies for space. We have to build them for the most part here on Earth. Ah, uh, yep, yep. That's so, where all our infrastructure is. Yeah, that's where we keep all our stuff, right? <laughs> that's the way the tick would say. Not the earth. That's where I keep all my stuff. So because we have all that stuff here and we're developing everything here, we're building it here, we can never be fully certain that the thing we designed here on earth is going to work the way we had intended once it's in space. Mm-hmm. So it may be. That this is acting as a platform to test these technologies, see if they are in fact viable in a space environment, and uh, return to Earth so that we can be certain that the stuff we developed is in fact doing what it was intended to do. Or at and, least figure out how it broke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if it's not working, then we try and figure out why is it not working? What caused that? What was the thing? Did, was a uh, uh, did it encounter a a like some cosmic radiation and right. it ended up messing everything up. If so, is there some way we can shield it from that? That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I think actually that this is probably the, the most likely out of 
all the different al- hypotheses. Yeah, I agree because and it's pretty yeah. much what the Air Force has said. <laughs> yeah, and and it, it's it has precedent behind it because they've continually built these platforms, as yeah. you said earlier. So it makes sense, and you also want to check because, especially if this is new. Uh, new technology of any sort. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little bit delicate, and you know, sensors are well sensitive. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and you could even argue that maybe it doesn't even go that far. Maybe it's just the Air Force wanting to test this autonomous mm-hmm. uh, uh, nature and to make sure that they can rely upon it, even if the mission extends much further out than what was originally anticipated. That's valuable information to know. Maybe yeah. it's not doing anything remotely, you know, secret right now, other than just making sure it works, which that's important to know. <laughs> and, and we can't know right. without the tests. So uh then there's another hypothesis where mm-hmm. um the X-37 is a delivery mechanism for space weapons. Space weapons. How do we define space weapons? That's an excellent question. <laughs> it's one that cannot be answered right now because it's a question that comes up over and over mm-hmm. in treaty discussions and sure. in, uh, uh, arms control discussions. People disagree over, and by people, I mean states, like right. countries disagree over the definition of space weapons. So, for example... Perhaps you have a missile detection system, mm-hmm. like a satellite system, that's deployed. Some would argue that is a space weapon. Now, it might be a space weapon in the form of defense, but they would still argue that counts under certain definitions. And right. other states, presumably the states that actually have missile de- detection systems in place, mm-hmm. would say, this totally doesn't count as a space weapon. Right. And we'll talk more about why they would say that. A little bit later, but um, the Pentagon, just for the record, denies yes. that, in fact, the X-37 has anything to do with space weapon deployment. It explicitly denies it. Uh, and also, you know, this concern about space weapons and, and militarization, I, I know we'll talk about it a little bit later, but there is also precedent in um, unclassified public record, mm-hmm. Pentagon statements, um, especially under uh, Rumsfeld's heading of the administration, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, th- there is an active desire on the part of not just the U.S., but other countries to to explore the possibilities of defensive capability in space. Yeah, it just no, makes sense. It's not a secret. I mean, anyone who lived through the 80s remembers the Star Wars program, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. so-called Star Wars program, which was a proposed and ultimately abandoned uh, plan to put an anti-missile system into space to protect against a potential first strike situation. Right. Or even, you know, not even a first strike, but maybe even a counter strike, uh, if you're being super cynical of, uh, you know, a system meant to to uh, disarm or disable incoming missiles that could uh, target the United States. Ultimately, it didn't go into place. Um, and I I, I want to say I've done an episode about that, but if I haven't, I absolutely need to. Yeah, I feel like we talked about this maybe we talked about it off air but that would be that would be a fantastic episode yeah, yeah. uh it's it's such an it's such an interesting thing we could also talk about dead hand systems but, oh yeah 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 but uh that's a story for another day uh, dr strange love stuff oh yeah yeah oh absolutely I, i'm i'm almost certain that chris and i did one episode on it at some point but i'll, I'll have to do a search because once you do around mm-hmm. 700 episodes you really can't remember what kind one. of blurs yeah. yeah well and for me Honestly, after I did about 10 episodes, I was I had trouble remembering. <laughs> but uh, 
So anyway, there are other mm-hmm. hypotheses as well, or other other um, statements that have come out from various experts mm-hmm. about the potential use of the X-37. Uh, Laura Grego of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists says that the design of the X-37 really limits what it could be able to do. And she says that really it can't maneuver easily in orbit. Mm-hmm. So it'd be very limited in its use as either spy technology or a space weapon. Uh, like we were saying earlier, you can sometimes see this thing from Earth. Sure. So maneuvering it is it's really hard to make that a secret. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Let's say like if if everyone notices that the X-37 happens to be in a particular quadrant, that's near, say, a Russian spy satellite, and mm-hmm. that spy satellite suddenly goes offline. It does not take a lot of imagination to connect those two thi- things together. Yeah, this is not a whodunit. Yeah, so probably not going to be used for clandestine purposes in that case. Um, she also says it's not large enough to be a satellite launcher. It doesn't have the cargo capacity to hold most satellites. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're talking about like the small cluster satellites that some people have referred to, maybe... But it's not designed to carry anything of substantial size. Right. Uh, so that's probably not what it's being used. What it can do, she says, is car- carry cargo up into space. And that's about it. Then mm-hmm. you have another uh, expert, uh, Mark Gubrand, uh, or Gubrand, who is an adjunct assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who says that space planes like the X-37 are not more effective than traditional launches of satellites or space weapons, even potential space weapons. Right. So in other words, putting them into other types of spacecraft to go up into space that, that aren't designed to come back down. So there's no real advantage. Like, yeah, you've got the reusable factor, which presumably would cut down on the cost mm-hmm. somewhat of space launches, mm-hmm. but that it's such a complicated endeavor and it's really designed to stay up there for a really long time that yeah. it's, it doesn't make sense to use it as a delivery mechanism. There's no reason why your delivery mechanism would need to remain up in low Earth orbit for hundreds of days. Right. You, you just get out there, you deliver it, you're done. So his argument is that, well, it doesn't really make sense. In fact, he would argue that the only reason that the program still exists is because it has so much momentum. Mm-hmm. That there was so much money and effort put into developing it. That it would, you know, it's kind of taken a life of its own. Yeah, it's a sunk cost at this point. Yeah, saying uh, that, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense compared to the alternatives. However, it, it, we already got the ball rolling and now it's going to continue to roll. Right, wherever it ends up rolling. And then there's another interesting thing that you had proposed. You said, yeah. what, what if it's, uh, what if there's a psychological aspect? Yeah, there, there's some who have suggested that perhaps at least part of the reason why this project Let's say that the project ultimately people say, yeah, there's no there's no practical reason to continue it because we can accomplish a lot of the same goals using alternative means that don't require this autonomous vehicle. Right. Um, some have said, well, maybe it's just to kind of freak out uh, potential adversaries like the Chinese. I like, OK, first off, I, that sounds so ridiculous on the offset. It sounds like a billion dollar prank. Yeah, you know, I agree. Like, like, hey, guys, you know, I'm concerned about what's happening over in China. And obviously we can't declare war or anything like that. But how do we scare them? Now, you could say that. Right. However, Sputnik was kind of that. You know, that's not a bad that's not a bad comparison. Yeah. And we, we do know that right now there's there's this very um, sensitive is a good word. 
a, a, a sensitive and ongoing uh, elbow knocking between nations in space. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that working on this episode made me think about was uh, the incident in 2007 where the Chinese government shot a satellite down from space. Yeah. And it was it was uh, pitched to the public as like, oh, it was bad. And we wanted to make sure that nothing terrible happened to it. So we took care of it. But it was also there was a psychological aspect between the countries. Right. To here's what we can do. Yeah. Look at our capability. We can bring down a satellite from the surface like we can launch an attack from the surface of the earth Mm -hmm. and bring down a satellite. Also, the rest of the world said, guys, don't. Don't clutter up space more than it already is. <laughs> right. Yeah. You are literally making it more dangerous for everything else that's out in low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's the reason there hasn't been any extraterrestrial contact. Maybe we're the equivalent of people who have refrigerators and stuff in their yard. Or 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 the equivalent of uh, like, well, you know, I really want to check out that beautiful waterfall, but there's all this abandoned barbed wire <laughs> and broken glass here. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of scared that if I try and walk through there, I'm going to cut myself up. Yeah. Like that's that's because, I mean, space debris is a serious problem, not just for manned missions, but unmanned spacecraft as well. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, we could have communication satellites that would get taken down if they encountered space debris. We're talking about things that could be really tiny. I mean, sure. Just a, a like a, a couple of centimeters per side. But traveling at those amazing speeds, they could do massive amounts of damage if they collide with something. Now, on the positive side, space is really big. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. But on the on the the less positive side, first of all, they're all all of these things are largely in the same general orbit, mm-hmm. you know, low Earth orbit. And secondly, the more debris you have, the more uh, the, the greater the odds increase of some sort of unintended collision. Working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town, I use my smartphone to look up things to do, or most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. 
you can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So making more garbage up there is not great. And then there's also um, a quote that you found from the London Times. Ah, yes. Uh, A while back, an unnamed Air Force official. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah. Or woman. Or that person. Yes. Uh, A recurring character. Yeah. (laughs) An unnamed Air Force official did note that the uh, ultimate goal of the X-37B is to aid uh, terrestrial war fighters. Which is still pretty vague. It's super vague, yeah. but it does confirm that there is a military aspect. Yeah, by the Air Force. Who knew? Yeah, right. I, I would think, again, you know, we see people chasing explanations or speculation about mm-hmm. what this is. But there's clearly something about um, an informational edge that I, I think yeah. is in there. Well, and, you know, to be fair, that that phrasing, it could mean anything, right? Oh, it, it could totally mean anything. It could it could mean reconnaissance it could mean support in the mm-hmm. sense of uh sending up uh a new satellite or small satellite i guess or or sure. some other kind of payload or it could mean some kind of weaponization i mean it's so vaguely defined that it could right. mean any of those things so again it and more often than not it fuels the speculation as opposed to oh now i understand exactly right? yeah it's there's a, there's something a little platitudinous about it um, yeah but the, but this brings us to a bigger issue, which um, you and I have been fascinated by. Right? Yeah. The concept of weaponization of space, like putting weapons into space for the purposes of warfare. So we're talking like uh, everything from those missile defense systems mm-hmm. to something that's more of an attack based form of warfare, something like. A, a system that could either launch uh, missiles or other uh, sure. types of weaponry from space or support some other coordinated warfare efforts. Uh, and obviously, this is one of those things that is a very delicate subject, particularly mm-hmm. when you look at the Earth and you say, how many nations are actually spacefaring nations? Right. Not as many as you think. They're... they're um... There are some big strides being made yeah. that will change the game. Yeah. But right now, the a lot of other nations are still catching up to what the U.S. and Russia did yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. So you've got things like you've got 
coalitions like the European Space Agency. Absolutely. And you've got uh, countries like India or China mm-hmm. or Japan mm-hmm. that all have to some extent worked on this sort of stuff. Some of them using the resources of other nations in order to actually launch things. But it is one of those deals where, you know, you have the the potential to affect a huge number of people some of whom are living in nations that have absolutely no capability of going into space at the moment. Right. So it it ends up raising some concerns. And in fact, the space race itself raised a lot of concerns. You get to a point where uh, the then Soviet Union can launch a satellite into space, in this case, Sputnik. Sputnik could not do much. It essentially beeped. And essentially, <laughs> it, all it really did was send a message that said, I'm still here until right. it until it stopped. Um, but that was enough to terrify people in the United States because the other implication was that if the Soviet Union could send a rocket all the way out into space, it could also send a rocket all the way over to the United States. Exactly. So it raised a lot of, of concerns, not just about, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, but also are we one day going to have a war breakout? where the weapons are in space, because that is terrifying. Right. Just a nuclear weapon dropping from near-Earth orbit. Yeah. So in 1967, several countries came together, and there was an open signing in 1967 that uh, took place in um, the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom and the United States for a treaty that is called, here's the full name, Yeah. The Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Well, that's a that's I guess they didn't have a lot of time to work on the title. Right. They were busy working on the actual agreement. Yeah, it wasn't so zippy with the title. It, it is uh, informally referred to as the Outer Space Treaty. Which, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Much easier. So uh, set up a lot of ground rules mm-hmm. about uh, about space, because obviously at that point, only really two nations were in the space game. But they were two nations that were philosophically opposed to one another. Absolutely. They were in the middle of a Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have all these other countries saying, you guys are getting like, first of all, you're really angry at each other. <laughs> Secondly, you've both amassed a huge number of weapons. Third, you've demonstrated that you are very much interested in going into outer space. Yeah. And we would like to have to have us all kind of calm down. Yeah. Let's set some ground rules. Breathe in and just chill out a little bit. But these are these are actually some fantastic rules to the point where I wish more nations were on board with this plan. But yeah. But what are what like? What are some examples? All right. So first, space exploration and its discoveries belong to all humans, not just one nation. So you can't hoard all the info. Beautiful. So, yeah, it's it's saying, look, there's the potential for what we learn out in space to benefit all of humanity. We cannot silo that information so that one nation benefits at the expense of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So there was an agreement that anything we learn that can become a benefit needs to be shared with everyone. Uh, anyone who with a technological capacity can explore space, so it can't be off limits to anyone. So in other words, if the United States has de- developed this spacefaring technology and then some other country that the U.S. is maybe not so friendly with does, the U.S. Like, can't move to block them. Right, like uh, Iran. You'll hear yeah. stuff about the Iranian space agency. And, you know, for some people it might seem strange that uh, – it might seem strange that there's such controversy over nuclear weapons, but relatively little controversy over um, 
any space exploration. And that's because of this. Yeah, exactly. Saying that, you know, philosophical disagreements or ideological disagreements or, or political uh, arguments aside, all nations, all states have a right to space exploration if they have the technological capacity to do so. Uh, you can't claim space property. Yep. You can't can't go out there and say this part of space belongs to the U.S. or to mm. the, Russia or to whatever. Uh, so you can't land on the moon, plant a flag and say that it belongs to you now. So Eddie Izzard's whole routine about how you can conquer just as long as you have a flag does not apply to outer space. He's going to be so upset. Nobody tell him, you guys. Right. Well, <laughs> this also means that the U.S. can't lay claim to the moon because no. we have a, an American flag up there. Um, obviously, the American flag is really in a, a sound studio someplace. Right. You know, not, right. It's a whole hoax deal. And because somebody already sold off most of the property on the moon, I have a couple acres myself. <laughs> right? Yeah. You love those. Uh, I mean, I'm sure those businesses are all on the up and up, right? Oh, yeah. yeah you, whenever you hear something like a, a, a company offering up space real estate. Sure. Uh, this treaty says that's not legal, at least not for states to do. So governments right. can't do it. If you say, well, I'm a private individual, therefore I can claim it. I'm sure you're going to have that. It's going to be very difficult to defend that. Mm-hmm. Not that it, not that there's any reason to defend it right now. It's totally not practical. But anyway, um, <laughs> also, no one is allowed to create weapons of mass destruction and place them in space. This is a big one. Yeah. Hard stop. For multiple reasons. Yeah. Now, it's talking about weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. So it's a very specific definition of the type of weaponry, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about a weapon capable of killing or otherwise injuring a huge number of folks at one go. Right. Yeah. A catastrophic effect every yeah. time the weapon's used. So any weapon that does not fall under that category is not, ex- ex- you know, it's, it's not prohibited under these terms. Yeah. And uh, that has led to discussions of other treaties that would um, end up filling in some of those gaps. But we'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. Other rules include the fact that celestial bodies can only be used for peaceful purposes. That one's so interesting to me because you know what what that also encompasses, right? That means not weaponizing an asteroid. Right. For instance, or altering the the path of something else in space so that it collides with the planet. You can't use an asteroid as a projectile weapon and aim it on uh, at like, you know, Russia. That's just Um, which you wouldn't want to do anyway. I mean, right. (laughs) Like you don't want to cause a a planet wide extinction level event. Right. Which is, you know, in the cards. If something like that happens. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that that has killed off entire you know, populations, entire, you know, species, collections yeah. of species sure. in the past. So, uh, yeah, you cannot use celestial bodies, uh, for any, you know, uh, for any non peaceful purpose. Governments are responsible for space activities, even if the activities themselves are carried out by private organizations, which is very forward thinking, mm-hmm. uh, since only state run operations had existed at that point. So, in other words, if SpaceX, does something really dumb out in space, the United States government would be held accountable for that because that's uh, the, presumably if they launched from the United States. I mean, it is a, a U.S. centered organization. So even though it's not run by the government, mm-hmm. the U.S. would still be held responsible uh, because they would essentially be allowing for it to happen. Right. Be aware, space billionaires. 
uh, yeah. because there you could get in a lot of trouble with your home country. Yeah, right? yeah. Your home country would get into a lot of trouble and stuff trickles down. Right. Or I should, we should say host country. That's yeah. what I meant to say. That's true. That is true. That's probably the best way of putting it. Uh, so if your stuff, meaning a state's property, mm-hmm. falls out of the sky and damages someone, you are at fault. So in other words, if the U.S. puts up a satellite and the satellite's orbit decays and the uh, decaying orbit means the satellite starts to fall into the Earth and does not burn up entirely and right. ends up colliding with like a public library over in Eastern Europe. Leaking th- dangerous chemicals. That U.S., the U.S. is at fault there. Right. It's because they were the ones who put it up there and they did not find a way to um, to bring it down safely. Usually uh, things like that are done in a controlled way where mm. it's purposefully brought down so that anything that would make it through the atmosphere, the rare instance that that actually does happen, would land in an ocean, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's always possible that you could have a situation where, you know, the the spacecraft is not responding to your commands to have it, you know, deorbit in a, in a controlled way. And that's kind of what this is covering. Also, states are not supposed to contaminate celestial bodies. No littering. No littering. I'm talking to you, Buzz. Look, look. Take only photographs, leave only footprints, <laughs> right? Right. And a flag. Maybe a flag. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple of lunar landers. I mean, come on, the moon's pretty big. That's right. not really littering, right? Yeah. Uh, so over time, obviously, this has been kind of updated. Uh, but there have been other proposed treaties that would end up beefing up these rules and defining them further. Uh, but they have had limited success in mm-hmm. adoption, and there are a lot of reasons for that. So a proposed treaty in 2014 would have placed more limitations on weapons in space, at least in theory. Uh, the draft treaty is formally called the Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space and of the Threat or Use of Force Against Outer Space Objects. So it's supposed to limit states' abilities to do things like launch missile attacks on satellites or yeah. or put weaponization in, into space, even if it's not mass destruction. Mm-hmm. And there were two countries that submitted this treaty to the United Nations, and it was Russia and China. Now, the United States opposed the treaty and said it would not sign such a treaty. Mm-hmm. And you might think, well, why would the U.S. say, no, I'm not going to sign a treaty that doesn't allow us to weaponize space? Does that mean the U.S. is very much interested in sending up tons of weapons into space? Uh... Yeah, that, that part is hard to answer. But I can tell you what the official answers have been, which is that China and this is their this, I, I am paraphrasing, but this is their perspective, not necessarily my own. Okay. China and Russia don't play fair. <laughs> that's that's what they're that's what essentially the message has been is that yeah. that this treaty is something that if the United States signed it, because the U.S. are the good guys. Remember, this is the narrative they're saying. Sure. That the U.S. are the good guys. The U.S. would abide by this treaty. Mm-hmm. But Russia and China, they're tricksy, my precious. <laughs> and they would totally ignore the treaty and say, look at the dumb Americans. They're totally abiding by these rules we've set, whereas we're actually going to send up as many weapons into space as we can. Mm-hmm. And we're going to end up getting dominance. It'll be an arms race in space that we will have a leg up on because we're not paying attention to the, the treaty. Right. And it's difficult because there the it goes back to this idea of verification, right? Yes. And, 
And that is such a tricky, nearly impossible thing when you're talking about state secrets like this. How do you how do you verify that no one is up to anything shady? Right. Yeah, that was, in fact, the, that was actually the way the U.S. Uh, uh, representatives worded it. They said kind of like your way better, though. Well, and other people have essentially said more or less what I said, just in nicer language. But the the specific line was that. This treaty, as it stands, is impossible to verify, meaning that you cannot there's no there's no regulatory agency mm-hmm. that could monitor states and make certain that no one was actually doing what the treaty said. So, in other words, they said that you can't enforce the treaty because you cannot be certain that people are abiding by it. And so it ends up being a meaningless treaty in the first place. It doesn't work because there's no means to monitor and therefore enforce it. So if there's no way to do that, then the treaty might as well not even exist, uh, because what you are doing is creating a pressure on countries that want to follow it in good faith, while other countries may not share that. And they'll just they'll violate it anyway. And there's no way to tell that they're violating it, because, again, there's no way to monitor it and verify it. So um, I I, I totally get their point. Like, I don't disagree with that. Right. And. Some might say, well, there's also ulterior motives that could be in play. Let's Mm -hmm. say that the United States wants to be able to have the option to send weapons, even if they're not weapons of mass destruction, up into space. Signing such a treaty would say that they would not do that, and maybe they want the option to remain open. It may be that there are even specific plans in place that we're not privy to and obviously would not be privy to. I'd like to think that that's not the case, but at the same time, I'd also like to think the government's not looking at all my emails, and that unfortunately has proven to be false. <laughs> yeah, it's always weird uh, when an intern at the NSA responds to one of your emails. Yeah, I yeah, like you, you send an email, like I'm emailing you, uh-huh. and the NSA intern's like, "Oh, Ben's at lunch right now." And it's like, so he's not going to respond until like four. Gary, I appreciate it. Yeah, but How's this is school, but stop. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> like, say hi to your dad for me. Uh, yeah, that that would be weird. Um, but, but also just just a note here. Also, we know that the ability to interfere with another state's satellites it could be so crucial and so pivotal that it's going to happen. Yeah. Somebody's going to try to do that. As as you've said before, you said in our notes here, uh, it's, this space war stuff mm-hmm. is not some distant sci-fi thing. No. It's real, and it's kind of we're kind of in the middle of the story. Yeah, the idea that you know China bringing down a satellite by firing a missile at it uh, purely because that was the most effective means of taking down the satellite does not ring true, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it definitely seems more like a demonstration of here's what we are capable of doing. So. If we ever enter an actual like conflict, whether it's an official war or not, mm-hmm. we have the capability of bringing down your satellites. Yeah. And so it's proven. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking about satellites that could provide communication, GPS data, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, obviously, the further out the satellite is, the harder it is for you to create a system that's going to be capable of bringing it down. You're sure. going to be able to hit the ones that are more in low Earth orbit than the ones that are further out. Uh, I mean, you're talking about a target that's further out is and it's moving at an incredible speed. Right. Yeah. Like the, I'm not saying it's impossible. It certainly isn't. It's just a lot harder. <laughs> like, but yeah. at any rate, the the capability has been demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a very vulnerable and valid target. If you are if you're very serious about warfare. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. And this this brings us um, all back around to the 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 subject we looked at today, which is the X thirty seven. And I gotta tell you, man, I've been holding on to this reference for the whole show, so okay. I've just gotta let it go. Yeah. There's something about an unmanned vehicle in the darkness of space just sort of orbiting in the silence that is so very event horizon to me. Yeah. What's yeah. going to come back the next time it lands, John? Right. right. <laughs> you know, a little hitchhiker. Yeah. Hey, right. I found your thing, man. I don't know what happened to the driver. He was gone when I got on. I promise you. <laughs> That's a good voice. Yeah. Thanks. I, I've been working on that character for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, this is not necessarily – the end of the the space plane discussion. There have been mm. some other talks about what the space plane might do, even in fa- in light of the the counter argument saying that perhaps it's not the most um, efficient or useful means of getting things into space. Mm-hmm. The Air Force itself had announced back in 2011 that it would develop a new spacecraft based on the same design that would be even larger than the X-37B. Remember, the 37 is 120% larger than the X-40. Right. This one would be bigger than the uh, X-37. And the numbers range between like 160 and 185%. So mm-hmm. bigger by almost a factor of two when you get to the higher ends. And uh, this one would potentially have a pressurized compartment, which means it could carry stuff ah, what lives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the... It has been suggested it could carry a a group of astronauts up to six into space. They don't have to pilot the thing. Right. Because it could still have autonomous control, although they said that it would also have manual control. So uh, astronauts could presumably – I assume astronauts. Maybe they mean manual control from the ground, which is also a possibility. Yeah. But that um, the astronauts would not necessarily have to pilot this thing. Uh, it would be the X-37C – um, creative name. Yeah. Uh, no idea if that project is still happening or not. Like it was announced in 2011. But again, mm. when you're talking about secret space planes, right, you don't get a lot of updates until they launch one and then it lands and then people are like, oh, so I guess that's still a thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we don't kn- I mean, we I don't know. People know. Someone not, knows. Not me. Right. Yeah. I'm not I'm not privy to such information. Uh, but it could be that we see a development and who knows, maybe there will be demonstrable uses for space plane technology that, uh, end up being, uh, you know, the, the best option and mm-hmm. that the objection saying that, Hey, we have other means of getting stuff into space that end up being less complicated than this methodology. Maybe that'll end up being moot. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to say right now because uh, obviously if you were to send astronauts up, mm-hmm. You're probably not doing one of those crazy 400 or 600. Oh, yeah, no. The body, it would be very, very tough on the the human body. And I can't imagine you could carry enough oxygen, water, food. (sighs) Yeah, always breathing Like, yeah, yeah. All the stuff, all the stuff that's necessary to keep people alive. I don't think you could carry all of that aboard a a space plane that's designed to be up there for 600 days. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so even if you were to say, well, we want to find out what happens to astronauts when they're <laughs> in a spacecraft for two years and uh, whether or not they come back as the Fantastic wow. Four. I mean, yeah, you know, it's worth a shot. Uh, <laughs> but 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 one thing we have learned about space radiation is it does not work the way that Marvel Comics may have told no, you as a child. No, it can it can really mess you up big time. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, you're talking about 
particles that move with a ton of energy that have the capacity to do uh, really like cellular level damage that can end up causing huge issues. Yeah, like irreparable damage. But let's let's go big, because despite these problems, right, despite the secrecy, and I know Mm. it's Orwellian and spooky and stuff, I'm so excited because this gets us one one tiny step closer to one of the one of the big dreams I've had uh, since we started working together, which is the podcast on the moon. Yeah. I mean, if they can just get us to the moon, Jonathan, we could do the rest. Might be uh might be a little quiet up there. I, I don't know how we're going to talk into the microphones the way we have this set up. Oh, we, um, we'll just go. It's a sound studio. Come on. Yeah. We'll just so just move the whole studio to the moon. <laughs> That makes more sense. I was just thinking of the table and the uh, mics <laughs> and also about how long the cords would have to be and that anything we asked Noel, we'd have to wait. Yeah. There'd be a, there'd be a, there'd be a, yeah, there'd be a noticeable mm. delay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm still in favor of it personally because I think, uh, I think that could really position us in a way that other podcasts just haven't thought to, right. to take advantage of that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing to me that it hasn't happened yet, honestly. Okay. Yeah. So, don't, uh, don't, don't steal our ideas. Yeah, yeah don't, don't jinx us, listeners. All right. So anyway, this has been a lot of fun to talk about the, you know, even though obviously what we don't know as members of the general public uh, far outweighs what we do know. Mm-hmm. But it's also fun just to kind of explore the psychology of not just like conspiracy theories in the sense of, well, since we don't have information, we have to fill that vacuum. Right. But also just the idea of what what could be the motives for pursuing this. I mean, obviously we're talking about something that costs a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. Maybe ultimately it's just a test of autonomous technology in a new, uh, a new, uh, form, like a new, a new, a new environment. And that, that ultimately could become really important, but in a totally different implementation, who knows? Mm -hmm. So it's been really interesting to talk. I want to thank you for bringing the topic up and joining me for this episode. Hey, thank you for having me next time. Not only will Will I read the list, but I will understand how it is supposed to be. Read. It's so. perfectly fine. Like I said, it's <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't realize that I had worded it in such a way saying don't pick anything on this list. Oh, you totally um, didn't. I, pro- I probably just skimmed it over. But, yeah, thank you uh, for this opportunity. I, I love talking about these space vehicles and the weaponry. And I'm going to go ahead uh, and. Tell everyone, if you haven't heard, about your other show, Forward Thinking. Yeah, that's that's the one where you don't hear so much about the weapons. You hear about how awesome the future is going to be. Right, right. And uh, I think that if you like these kind of conversations, that you'll also uh, really enjoy that podcast as well. Yeah, the podcast uh, is with Joe McCormick and Lauren Vogelbaum. And together we explore topics about things that will be really important in the future. Some of them in the short term, some of them in the far long term. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of fun doing it. Of course, there's the video series as well, which is is fantastic. Also, you can check out the the dark and shady side of our world over at Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Then Ben Mm -hmm. and Matt Frederick do an amazing job on that show. Well, thank you. Um, Occasionally, I show up as as an unwitting accomplice, (laughs) uh, sometimes an unwilling accomplice. (laughs) Sometimes, which reminds me, uh, we we should talk about about the uh, next team up when you get a chance, but that is... A story for another day. Everybody yeah. acts surprised. Yeah. So uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any suggestions for future tech stuff topics, um, future guest hosts or future interviews, anything like that, or you just have a question or comment, you should send that to me. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. 
or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.